Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. Listening to episode 110 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're going to be listening to and answering some weird questions. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So, Jimmy, what are we doing this week? Well, it's a fifth Friday, so we're going to be doing fifth Friday weird questions. What follows is an episode from Catholic Answers Live, where Cy Kellett and I took on weird questions that people had sent in. This time we're going to be talking about things like, did Jesus die to save extraterrestrials too? Uh, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? There is an answer to that question. What was the apparition that appeared to St. Paul on the road to Damascus? Was it public or private revelation when Jesus appeared to him? Various other things, including uh, extracting DNA from things like the Shroud of Turin or from Eucharistic miracles, and uh, just in general, quite a number of interesting and weird questions. And by the way, the artwork for this episode is a painting called Christ Blessing the Grays. And if you want to see that painting, uh, we'll also have a link to it in the further resources in the show notes, along with links to where all of the individual questions start. Excellent. And so uh, here's the show. Maybe you want to sit down because it's going to get weird. Weird questions with Jimmy Aiken, something we do every now and then because we get weird questions here. Uh, and our guest, of course, when we do weird questions with Jimmy Aiken is Jimmy Aiken. That's not very weird. No, That's that, what you'd expect. You're right. We should call it weird <laughs> questions with somebody with Dick Cavett. Yeah. And then it'll be you. Yeah. That, that would, would be, be weirder. Weird. Yes. Yeah. Excellent point, Jimmy Aiken. Uh, yeah. Thanks so for coming back. Speaking of weird things, I had a little thing I was thinking about. I was doing some show prep before this hour, and I was thinking about the fact, you know, we were just, we took a question at the end of last hour about how God dealt with the Israelites, kind of like a parent deals with a child. And as a child matures, you deal with, um, with uh, children differently because they can handle more responsibility and so forth. And I was thinking, that got me to thinking about a line in St. Paul, where St. Paul talks about how... Um, we eagerly await our adoption as sons of God uh, and a, a son is a child until the time determined by the father. And to a modern person, that can sound weird because it's like, well, you're an adult as soon as you're 18. Not in the ancient world. In the ancient world, in Roman culture, uh, the father of the household, the pater familias, decided when you were an adult. And oh. so, so the father could... Um, do it early if someone matured early. Mm -hmm. He could do it late if they matured late. Yeah. And so, but it was up to him to make that determination. And there was a special ceremony because, you know, humans like rites of passage. Boy, do we. Yes. Right. Special ceremonies. And, and so, um, there was a special ceremony where for the first time, and then this is in Roman society, but, um, you would, when you got the right to become a man, you would like shave your beard for the first time. And you also got to put on what was called your toga virilis. 
Um, and Manly toga. Yeah, except the way I've seen it translated in some English translations is you'll have people saying, I really want to put on my manly gown. <laughs> it's that like kind of takes something uh, out of it. Yeah, I know, but I just love that. So that's the weird thing I was thinking about, about people in ancient Rome wanting to put on their manly gowns. Uh, yes, uh, that uh, in this, in the modern, <laughs> in the modern context, that means something else. Uh, I got some weird for you. Okay. Okay. So we were talking, who knows why we just get onto these things. We were talking about whether if you buy a live chicken, not a live chicken, mm-hmm. but if you buy a live buy a chicken, whole chicken, if you buy a whole chicken at the store, does it have a does gizzard? still have gizzards? And Danielle emailed apparently urgently mm. to uh, to radio uh, at Catholic.com. And she said, please tell Cy and Jimmy they need to have Carlo Broussard bring them to South Louisiana, enter any grocery store, and they'll find gizzards, livers, hearts, etc. Mm-hmm. So um, cool. Liver is often part of plate lunches. Oh, I love Southern plate lunches. I like we always put gizzards in our gumbo and we love gizzard and chicken heart stew. Uh huh. So we are so we stand corrected. Well, I don't know if we we didn't say you don't get them. We just no, said we didn't know you if you asked still a get question. Them. Yeah. And by the way, in southern Louisiana, there, Danielle, things may be entirely different there than they are here in uh, the Republic of California, uh, because who knows what's legal here and what's not at any given time? Yeah, <laughs> you never know. They probably have to put a special label on it. Uh, okay, yeah, like you can't have gerbils here. Is that really true? You yeah. can't have gerbils? Yeah, I looked into it because I had a gerbil as a kid. And I liked having a gerbil and I thought yeah. about getting one as a pet, not in California. I did know you can't have a, a weasel or what's the other name for a weasel? A ferret. Really? Yeah, you can't have. It's crazy. What, what, why is this? You They're, can't have weasels or ferrets? Ferrets are fun. I, they do the weasel war dance. <laughs> That's exactly right. But it's a it's a state of laws. Like they, yeah, they, they think crazy. of something and they just make a law against it. You can't do yeah. that. No, you can't do that here. Um, all right, Jimmy, you ready for some weird yeah. questions? Yeah, yeah. All right. Let's start um, with Abraham. OK. Uh, this is not the original Abraham. I think he's named after the original Abraham. Mm. Is there anything in tradition or scripture? And he capitalized both of those. That points to a man as God's closest and favorite creature to the extent that. There may be other life forms in existence superior to us to us in every way, except in our closeness to God's heart. What an interesting question. So in terms of material creation, um, we do have an indication that man is favored by God in a way that no other earthly creature is. Because when you look at the days of creation in Genesis one, you have uh, God repeatedly declaring creation doing what he's made to be good. But then when he makes man, he declares it very good. Ah. So that's an indication that uh, that man is special in a way other earthly creatures aren't. The problem here is we're talking about the planet Earth. So we don't know. He could have other people on other planets that are special to him, too. In terms of could we be special to him in a in a way that other even superior creatures aren't? Um, the answer to that would seem to be yes. Mm-hmm. Because the angels are superior to us. They're more powerful than we are. They are naturally immortal in a way we're not. Um, they are smarter than we are. So the angels are superior to us. And we are we do read in scripture that we're made lower than the angels. Nevertheless, God chose to become incarnate as one of us and to redeem us from sin. Whereas uh, the book of Jude points out, he did not stoop to pick up angels when they fell. And uh, so that suggests humans are favored in a way that angels are not, even though 
um, angels are superior to us in several respects. So you put those together, those two things together, and I couldn't rule out that there are aliens out there who are superior to us, and we might still have a specially favored relationship with God. Um, We'll have to wait till we meet such aliens to figure that out. All right, Abraham. Thank you very, very much for that question. I wonder if aliens would look like us. I think they would look pretty much like us. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them might. Um, the The body form we have is one that uh, is successful for intelligent creatures. Um, you need good eyes, yeah, um, to and and a manipulator ability like the opposable thumb, and also something like a tongue to be able to, uh, like our tongue, to yeah. be able to communicate uh, effectively through language. Now, there are other ways of doing this, but this is a successful body form. It could be similar to, it could be used by other intelligent creatures in the universe, but they also could look really different from us. I guess so. I hope they're not blobs if we do meet them. Well, what do you I, got against blobs? I don't know. I just, it just seems weird to, talking to a blob. No, I think we should... Think we, we should think we should think about this uh, blob prejudice. I, I, I definitely have speciesism. 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 Yeah, that's what I meant. Uh, Mitch uh, asks, how did they keep time in the New Testament times? Well, um, four, they four. did it in a variety and six, eight. Yeah, <laughs> um, they did it in a variety of different ways. Obviously, it depends on the time scale you're measuring. Um, in terms of, uh, the day, you know, they used the same system that we do is this, you know, when does the sun come up and when does it go down and stuff? So they would measure days that way. Um, they would also divide the days into different units like hours or in the nighttime watches. Um, and these units could sometimes be determined, you know, what time it was during the day could sometimes be determined either by the position of the sun in the sky or by like a sundial. Mm -hmm. Um, I, the, the water clock, I believe had been invented by this time, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't yet reliable. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I know candles were used later on. Because you could tell how, you know, if you know this standardized candle, how long it's going to burn. But I don't know for a fact that those were used in the first century. At nighttime, you would determine things by the you could determine things by the position of the moon and the stars. Um, And the moon is also how they determine the months in Israel. Uh, um, uh, they their month began every new moon Mm -hmm. and they had a special procedure. Uh, that we still have the laws for uh, at Jerusalem at the beginning of every month, you would have these guys who had sharp eyesight yeah. and they would uh, come and testify to the priests that we just saw the new moon. And then the priests would issue a declaration. And so everyone who was connected with Jerusalem. Now, this didn't apply to distant Jewish colonies like Alexandria, right. but everyone in the Jerusalem area would say, OK, it's now this month. Yeah. And they had special procedures. Because the new moon was ritually important. It was, in fact, it was one of the Jewish festivals was the new moon festival. And so um, because of its ritual importance, they had these tests that they would use to examine the witnesses. So like if you didn't have just one witness, you had to have multiple witnesses say we saw the new moon. Wow. And there were certain restrictions on who could serve as a witness. And then they would have these examination questions like, OK, you saw the new moon. Which way did the curve go? 
because it's always the same way when the moon is uh, is waxing rather than waning. Oh. And if he says the wrong direction, then you kill him. Discount his testimony. Oh, okay, I thought we were going to kill him. Yeah. Okay. So uh, so that's how they would determine the months, and then the annual cycles were determined partly by uh, the. Uh, arrival of the crops, also by the position of the stars. In fact, in Egypt, where they have basically three seasons, uh, inundation, uh, emergence, and summer, um, the inundation season is when the Nile rises and then fertilizes the Nile Valley so it can plant, plant their crops. Emergence is when the water recedes, so the land reappears, and then summer is when it's dry. Um, the flooding of the Nile annually occurs right after the appearance of of the star Sirius oh, over the right, horizon. Right. And so they'd watch for Sirius and know inundations about to happen. And that was effectively one of their New Year's. What an interesting question. Uh, thank you very, very much for that uh, question, Mitch. Now we know how they kept time in the New Testament times. Speaking of New Testament times, I wonder what the early church was like. <laughs> well, here's someone who can answer that question for us. Si. So, I, but I, I want to follow up real quick on, uh, on 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 Jimmy's discussion of time here. So, the laborers in the vineyard mm-hmm. in our Lord's parable there, there's a few who just you know at the end they work a couple hours at the end of the day. Yeah, but of course, in our translation. Hours may mean something different here than 60 minutes. It, or... it means approximately the same thing, but they Does it? they didn't. Um, yeah, the watches of the night were longer than an hour, but uh, the daytime hours were meant to be what we would think of as an hour. But in practice, it varied because if you divide the unit of the daytime into 12 units, then how long those units are will depend on how close you are to the winter solstice Uh, versus the summer solstice because the the daytime changes length. Right. Yeah. Excellent question, Chris Check. Fascinating. (laughs) But like, okay, so look, if you've got to wait for people to say new moon to get a new month, Mm -hmm. how do you know which day the rent is due on? Like, do you, or do you think that they didn't pay rent? Like, do you, Uh, it must have been rent, right? Or no? Maybe that was invented later. No, they're, they're, I believe they did have rent and I know they had rent in the Roman world, I'm sure they had it in the Jewish world too. Um, if there was currency, it, it was de- rent. It, it, yeah. would, it would depend. <laughs> it would depend on what you had agreed with your landlord. Uh, right now, we got Jimmy Aiken. So, so, and we just had Chris check. Yeah, and I liked how he said initially, "We're here to tell you to come to our conference," and then he corrected it to, "We're." here to invite you yeah and so it's like that's a politer way to say tell and so i'm just thinking if you want to be like really polite with your two-year-old you can invite them not to run out in the street yes i'm yeah. inviting you to not run out in the street in an extremely loud shrieking panicked voice yeah that, mm-hmm. that would be good uh it is fun to try to reason with two-year-olds though mm-hmm. yeah as long as their life is not on the line yeah their know. favorite word is no yeah well then <laughs> I always found that three, I don't know, mm-hmm. uh, but three, they, man, they love the word no at three. People talk about the terrible twos, mm-hmm. but three is, um, mm. uh, I don't know what, if, if, if the terrible three or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go to, oh, suffering succotash. Suffering succotash. It's weird questions, by the way, with Jimmy Aiken. Uh, Paul <laughs> asks the following question, Jimmy. Did Jesus die to save extraterrestrials too? We don't know. Um, partly that depends on uh, on a couple of things. Um, one is it depends on God's intention. That's the fundamental thing it depends on. Uh, you could make an argument. It also depends on are there, in, 
are there extraterrestrials? And here we're talking about intelligent beings, I yeah, assume, not right. microbes on Mars and yeah. stuff. Although I think there are microbes on Mars. Um, Ew. Yeah, I think it's a germy planet. <laughs> That's gross. Um, but uh, one, there are a couple of theological dimensions to this that are relevant. The first one is um, the fact that Jesus' sacrifice was infinite in value because he's God and he's infinite. And so his sacrifice had infinite value. Um, and as a consequence of that, his sacrifice was certainly sufficient to cover the sins of aliens if there are aliens and if they have sins. Okay. Um, the, uh, however, it's also sufficient to cover the sins of angels. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't apply to angels. Uh, as we mentioned, Jude says God didn't stoop to pick up angels when they fell. Now, if you look in the catechism, the catechism has a theological explanation for why it doesn't apply to angels. It says um, that it's not because the mercy of God is is limited. It's because the way angels consciousness works they made their decision all at once at the beginning of their existence, mm-hmm. and they don't change after that. Right. Whereas we have a period over the course of our earthly life where we can go back and forth. And then whatever our final answer is becomes fixed at the point of our death. We won't change our minds after that. We'll either be friends with God and we'll like that, yep. or we'll not be friends with God. And that's our choice, too. We and won't. We won't. We're, like we're, we won't. We won't repent though and say well right. i want to be his friend now yeah so um so that's there's certainly enough value in christ's sacrifice to cover all angels but it may or may not apply to them depending among other things on god's intent and on how their minds work you extraterrestrial extraterrestrial yes yeah. um the um i would suspect that because they're likely to be changeable like we are yeah. in their in, in their decisions, uh, at least during their physical lives, I would suspect that the thing that prevents it from being effective for angels would not prevent it from being effective for them. However, that still leaves us with the question of God's intent. Also, even if God intended to have Christ's sacrifice here on earth be sufficient for them and applicable to them. That doesn't mean he didn't also incarnate on their planet and maybe die for them there too, as a demonstration of his love for them, because the cross wasn't the only time Jesus suffered in his life. Jesus suffered many times during his life. And all of those instances of Jesus suffering have a certain redemptive aspect to them. And so if Jesus, even though he only died once here on earth, I can't rule out that God didn't choose to also have him die elsewhere as a demonstration of his redemptive love for others. I'm not saying he did. No, no. I'm just saying I can't rule it out. All right. Uh, Thank you very much, Paul, for that uh, question. Again, it's a weird question. One last little dimension of that. Some people will interpret Jesus's death as having a relationship not just with mankind, but the entire cosmos, the entire physical world. And if that's the case, that would be an additional argument for his death having some relevance to extraterrestrials. I gotcha. Uh, We up next is a question from William. I have seen this question before, William. Hmm. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? As many as God wants. That's the simple answer. The The reason for that is because angels do not 
natively occupy space. So um, there's no for an angel to dance, Mm -hmm. it would have to manifest in some way Mm -hmm. uh, through an angelophony. Mm-hmm. which is a fancy way of saying an angel manifesting. Yeah. And uh, so angels, you know, do manifest. They do have physical effects in the Bible. Um, but uh, however many God wants would be able to do it because that physical manifestation, number one, could be small. There's no limit to how small it could be. Um, I mean, maybe the plank length. Um, would limit how small an angel's physical manifestation could be. But even then, that wouldn't determine the number of angels because it's only the electromagnetic force of the universe that prevents two objects from existing in the same space at the same time. It's not gravity. It's the fact that uh, the outer shells of of atoms are made of electrons and they repel each other. And so that's keeping things apart. But angels could overlap with each other. Their manifestations might not be electromagnetic. William, thanks for asking that question. It's Weird Questions with Jimmy Aiken. We got a whole bunch. Some of them get a little weirder. Uh, We'll be right back with more Weird Questions with Jimmy Aiken on Catholic Answers Live right after this. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at AaronV.com. Live. It's weird time. We got weird questions for Jimmy Aiken. Uh, and uh, we'll see if the answers are weird. So far, I don't know that the answers have been all I that weird. Really evaluate possi- question answers along the yeah. is it weird or not axis. No, I, I'm still not, uh, not happy about uh, your response to me that uh, they could be blobs if there's extraterrestrials. I out just there. said could be. I didn't I, say are. I know. I just find it weird. That's In all. fact, I would argue that intelligent aliens are unlikely to be blobs. Thank you for yeah. saying that. I feel the, much better now. The, the reason is um, that they, uh, it, in order to drive the development of intelligence mm-hmm. from a biological perspective, um, you need the ability to easily interact with your environment. Um, so you need oh. the ability to move around, you need the ability to manipulate things and all of that is in, you need the ability to communicate and all of that suggests a sophisticated anatomy that simply isn't like a blob. However, yeah, they could be, be however. they could be like shoggoths and be blobs that have the ability to form temporary appendages enabling them to interact with their environment and communicate and things like that. I didn't think you could make it creepier. I didn't (laughs) didn't think it could get creepier, but uh, uh, Seamus uh, asks this, Jimmy, was the apparition that St. Paul had on the road to Damascus a private or public revelation? Depends on how you're going to define your terms. Uh, Private and public revelation are theological terms. They don't come from the Bible. And so they really mean what theologians use them to mean. Mm -hmm. And there's some dissatisfaction um, with uh, with the term private revelation because it's kind of ambiguous. Mm -hmm. Um, I I know I've seen in uh, Fishy Shella's Dictionary of Fundamental Theology and his entry on um, I think it's by Rene Latourelle in the entry on private revelation. There's like a proposed alternative. It's something like a special revelation or something like that. But um, uh, if one of the things you find, and it's kind of interesting. Now, the Bible is all public revelation. Uh, 
But that doesn't mean the Bible can't record instances of private revelation. It just means when it does so, these are true. And so uh, you will find theologians like Rene Latourelle and Avery Dulles. He talks about this in his book on on Revelation, at least he mentions it briefly, um, that the Bible does seem to contain um, incidents of private revelation. It does talk about them. And so if you unless you say everything that the Bible mentions um, has to be a public revelation by definition, then it would look like, no, what happened with St. Paul here has a private aspect to it. Um, Jesus appeared to Paul, n- not to people in general. And in fact, the people who were with Paul only had a partial experience mm-hmm. of what Paul was experiencing. They could like hear a voice, but not understand it. They could see a light, but they didn't see Jesus himself. So they had a partial experience of it, but this was really meant for Paul. And although Paul later disclosed certain things about what Jesus said to him, we don't know everything he said. He might've said additional things. He might've had additional instance insights all supernaturally all in an instant that couldn't even be expressed in words necessarily yeah and so um so i would say uh based on a natural use of the term that this would count as a private revelation because it had this private dimension to it but the fact of this private revelation is guaranteed in public revelation which also contains some details about the private revelation Okay, so what it, it the public revelation is the book of Acts. Yeah, yeah. in the Bible. Right. Like right. the rest of the Bible's public revelation. Yeah, I gotcha. Okay. Uh Seamus, thank you very much for that question. Stephen asks this Do the promises uh of Jesus' return and other associated events give us ancillary assurance? That the human race will not first be totally wiped out by some other disaster, such as a planet-killing asteroid or biological superweapon. Yeah, I've actually thought about this since my childhood, and I think the answer is yes. Um, the fact that Jesus uh, is going to return uh, before the end of the human race means the human race will not be entirely extinguished by any future disaster prior to the second coming. However, that doesn't mean large chunks of the Mm -hmm. human race will not be extinguished Mm -hmm. by a nuclear war or a um, or a uh, quantum black hole or a strange lit impact or the list can stop now. Okay, (laughs) or a virus. (laughs) Um, I mean, I didn't even know that there was such a thing as a quantum black hole. And now I'm nervous about it. Well, you shouldn't need to worry about it because they're so small. They can't really suck up much mass. It would be improbable for one of them to grow large enough to actually threaten the Earth. That's what I was hoping. Um, but uh, on the other hand, a strange lit, if you have like even a little bit of strange matter, we're in big trouble. Um, <laughs> but so lots of people right. could yeah. could die, right. um, but not all. And uh, and so that's there is some reassurance in that. Not everybody will be dead at the time of the second coming. Um, this did happen in human history once, right? That the human race was devastated. About. Yeah, at least uh, at least once and uh, possibly more than once. Those are what are referred to as population bottlenecks. Yeah. And we have uh, genetic evidence. Now, some people will look at Noah's Ark and say, oh, population bottleneck. Yeah. But it may not have been a universal flood. 
Oh, and okay. also we're in an area of Genesis where there's a high level of symbolism being used. So, you know, you have to be a little careful here because history is not being written the same way according to the same conventions that it's that are used later on in the Bible. But we have evidence uh, from human uh, DNA that indicates that the um, that the human race at one time had gotten down to just a few thousand people, yeah. like 10 or 20,000. And that was all. And the, everyone who's alive today is descended from them. Uh, that's a close call. Uh, Stephen, thanks very much. A very, very interesting question. Oh, another. Uh, this is Steve, not Stephen. Uh, mm-hmm. Can a priest give himself confession? If a priest lives in an extremely remote location, far from any other priest, and he commits a mortal sin, does he get an exception to the prohibition to receive the Eucharist since he must receive uh, the, as part of the Mass? Or can we stop working on the document? <laughs> I'm trying to read it. Yeah, I don't <laughs> <laughs> The document's being edited as I'm reading it. Or does he have a special means uh, to temporarily give himself confession? So um, (laughs) Stephen is right, or Steve, whichever it is, is is right that a priest is absolutely required to receive communion at Mass. He is not to celebrate Mass if he's not going to receive communion. So that does result in there being situations like this. I know, for example, um, St. Damien de Wooster uh, of Molokai. Right. Um, you know, he's here at this leper colony in this remote Hawaiian Island. He doesn't get a chance to hang out with other priests very much. And so like there was one incident in his life where he needed to go to confession and there's another priest, but he's sailing away on a boat. And so you have St. Damien shouting his confession to the departing priest in a language that the other people don't speak. Oh yeah. Um, and at least that's the story. Uh, but there actually are provisions for this. Yeah. So, and, and they don't just apply to priests. Um, a person, the fundamental condition for receiving communion is you need to be in a state of grace. And so if you haven't been able to go to sacramental confession, which is the ordinary way of returning to a state of grace, you can also return to a state of grace through making an act of perfect contrition, which reconciles you with God even before you have the opportunity to go to confession. And so um, what happens is in the case of a priest who needs to celebrate mass but can't go to confession first, he needs to make an act of perfect contrition with you know the intent to go to confession as soon as it's reasonable and he and that will enable him to go ahead and celebrate mass same thing applies to us now we're not required to um to receive communion at mass yeah which is something a lot of people don't seem to realize you don't have to receive communion at mass you don't have to receive communion to fulfill your sunday obligation you're totally i mean you need to receive once a year but you don't have to receive every time you go to mass So um, we don't have need to go to mass as an excuse enabling us to do this. But if there's some grave necessity, like danger of death or something else, um, then that option is available to us as well. We can uh, go ahead and make an act of perfect contrition with the intent of going to confession as soon as it's reasonably possible and go ahead and receive because there's a grave necessity to do so in this case. All right, Uh, Steve, thanks for that. I had an image in my mind of uh, uh, 
Father Damien making his confession while everyone else is listening. Like, I stole that guy's soup. Yeah. And, then, <laughs> and then that guy over there, I just can't stand him. <laughs> oh, sorry, everybody. Uh, okay, we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more uh, weird, weird questions. Questions <laughs> with Jimmy Aiken right after this. Uh, let's go to Mark's question now. It's weird questions for Jimmy Aiken. Uh, and um, Mark says, if Jesus could heal the Roman soldier's child from a distance and Jesus gave the power to forgive sins, then why can't the priest absolve someone from a distance? Because, uh, so there are two possible answers to this. One is because it's impossible for him to do so, that the sacraments intrinsically require personal presence, or at least that this sacrament intrinsically requires personal presence. And the second possible answer is because the law presently does not permit him to. Oh, and um, I think there's an interesting case to be made that it's the second answer that's correct. Oh, that hypothetically, if um, if a priest, uh, if the law were different, that priests would be able to absolve people at a distance. And the reason I say that is because there is another sacrament where it is possible to have the sacrament performed at a distance without personal presence there. And that sacrament is matrimony. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, it, the way the law is written, and so, you know, that's what I'm basing this on, but the way the law is written, you can have the parties exchange consent in front of a minister, even if one of them is not there via proxy. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. So so marriage by proxy is which is not very common, but it is historically done. Mm-hmm. Uh, marriage by proxy is actually allowed by canon law. And so that would suggest that personal presence is not required for the uh, for the sacrament of matrimony. And even then, um, you know, it, it's a question of how close do you got to be? Yeah. You know, right. I mean, if I'm. 150 feet away, but I'm still shouting my consent to the marriage. Is that okay? Well, what if I'm 151 feet away? You know, really, this sacrament involves the exchange of consent involves the transmission of information. It's not like uh, Holy Communion where you have to receive in your mouth or anointing of the sick, where you have to touch someone to anoint them. Um, And uh, and so really matrimony is an information based sacrament where um, where the matter is provided by the exchange of information. And I would argue reasoning in a parallel fashion. The same thing is true of confession because the priest never has to touch you during confession. Mm-hmm. And so um, it uh, it it seems that the matter of the sacrament is provided by the exchange of information. And if you can have a proxy, ex- you know, serving to convey the information in a marriage so you don't have to personally be there, I would assume in principle the same thing is going to be true of confession. And in fact, I can even cite a precedent for uh, for this from the history of sacramental theology. If you read moral and pastoral theology by Henry Davis, who was a Jesuit in the 1930s, he wrote this four volume manual on moral and pastoral theology. You look in the section on confession. He considers the question, can you confess by telephone? And he concludes, now, this is not what the law is today. Okay. So, and right. there are good this, reasons for this. So could we call this a speculation? But, but yeah. Okay. Uh, but he, he thinks you can. 
Uh-huh. And so he he's he in he actually thinks you can confess over the telephone mm-hmm. in the right situation. Um I would have a hard time justifying that outside of danger of death. Um, But um, he thinks uh, that it will be valid if you confess over the telephone. And so he seems to have the same information based understanding of the matter that doesn't require immediate personal presence. Um, And so uh, so I would think there's a significant case to be made that personal presence isn't required for the matter of confession to be valid, just the information getting there as via proxy or proxy technology that conveys it um, could be sufficient. Uh Uh-huh. Very interesting. I I can't. Yeah. Oh, and do not try to confess by telephone because it's not secure if for no other reason, apart from apart from doubts about the validity of 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 the matter in this case it's also not secure and the nsa is listening and you don't need them to know what your sins are <laughs> i stole this guy's soup. I'm, I'm amazed that i'm a little amazed that davis even suggested this in the 1930s i mean that was the era when party lines were common oh yeah <laughs> anybody could pick up the phone and listen to what you were saying uh, right uh, uh uh to to which party are you um calling yeah um the, here's the thing. Okay. I, I, since it's a weird question, yeah. I'm going to push this a little okay. further. Say I'm the Pope and I'm the legislator and I get to decide this. I wouldn't allow it now because I don't think it would be trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Like there's the, the technology is getting so advanced in mimicking voice and video and everything. How could you ever be certain that you really are engaging with another person? You see what I'm saying? Like the, you're worried about deep fakes. Yeah, deep fakes. That's the that's yeah. the word, right? Yeah. Um, well, I would I would say the so you're, the scenario you're imagining is let's say I'm the penitent, yeah, and I contact the church via electronic means, right? And how do I know the priest I'm talking to is not a deep fake? Yeah. That is a computer simulated human that right. is indistinguishable from a real one. Well, for one thing, right now they can't pass the Turing test. The Turing test is oh. where you can't distinguish a human from an artificial intelligence based on interacting with them. And they can't do, you know, that. you read, yeah. you listen to, you look at what chatbots are doing right now yeah. and they're, they cannot be passed for human. In fact, I was just looking at a video. I put it on Facebook, um, a video of an, it was an animated video of a story that was written by an AI. Oh yeah. And it was completely ridiculous. I mean, it's just a terrible story. It's hilarious to watch it because the AI oh, is like find that. the AI is incorporated like all of the Star Wars movies and all of the Harry Potter books and a bunch of things by other people and then tried based on that to write a story. Yeah. And so you're you're going along and this is a ridiculous, terrible story, and then all of a sudden Hagrid the table shows up and starts talking to people. <laughs> And so I in in my comment, I said Hagrid is clearly destined to be the fan favorite character from this AI story. Um, But um, so you right now we do have confidence that uh, the person we're talking to, if they are showing human interactions, um, that they're a real human being. Um, It's also unlikely that even if I mean, why would someone want to deep fake you? In confession. Yeah, that's true. Also, unless they wanted to now, get my confession. They, yeah. they, they could. Um, but here's the thing. Um, by the time AI is good enough 
to pass the Turing test, yeah. we're going to have the ability to make androids that are indistinguishable from human beings. Oh, yeah. So right. how do you know, if you go to a physical confessional, how right. do you know that you're not dealing with an android priest who's there to tape your confession? I hate android priests. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I probably shouldn't use such strong language, but okay. I'm with you. Yeah. I, I, so I, that yeah. problem will be solved when we get to it. Uh, Don asks this. Why do we generate? <laughs> Come on, Cyril. Don asks, why do we genuflect on the right knee? Not the left. Um, it's a combination of two things. Uh, the The fundamental answer is it's a matter of custom. But the reason for the custom is because uh, most human beings are right-handed. And that, uh, that results in uh, right-hand dominance being socially preferred. And so when we transfer that to kneeling um, under the influence of right-handed social dominance, um, that leads us to want to reserve the right knee for the most important sign of reverence and use the left knee for a lesser sign of reverence. So when we genuflect, we go down on the right knee because we're genuflecting to God, the most important person or set persons there are. And we reserve the left knee for like genuflecting to a head of state or something like, oh. like the Queen of England. You're going to use your left knee. Um and because they're not as important as God. And so it's the uh, desire oh. to distinguish the reverence we show to God from the reverence we could show to another human being. And under the fact that most people are right handed, uh, we apply that to our knees. Although the fact your you, your right hand may be dominant doesn't imply which leggedness you have. Um, I have really, Jimmy. yeah, I am dominantly right-handed, although I'm somewhat ambidextrous. I can use, I use my left hand for some things, but I know I'm left footed Yeah, and not just cause I'm Catholic. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the reason I know that a the reason I, footer. the, the I reason I, people get that reference, it's, that's, a, it's an English slur for, for Catholic, yeah. yeah, left footer. Um, the idea there is you you use your wrong foot when you, your left foot instead of your right foot when pushing down a shovel. And that's the stupid way to do it. Oh. Um, but uh, I w was first identified as a left footer by my old chiropractor who uh -huh. looked at the wear patterns on my boot and said, you're a left footer. And I had never known that. Um, but uh, some years ago, I was after he told me that I was out in the parking lot here behind the Catholic Answers building and I encountered a baby rattlesnake. And it was rattling at me. And my first thought was, there are women in this building who are wearing sandals. And oh. my second thought was, what do you know? I am left footed. <laughs> As you because on the baby I had just stomped on the baby rattlesnake <laughs> with my with my boot. And then my third thought was, I just enacted my own personal version of Genesis 315 nice. in the Proto-Evangelium. Right. Yes. <laughs> he, you smited him. Yeah, you struck at his head yes, and he yeah. was striking at my heel, I'm sure, at the same time. But I had a boot on, so I won. Uh, Karen wants to know this, Jimmy. Uh, is it possible to determine to to determine Jesus DNA from the shroud, from the holy face of Manopello or from Eucharistic miracles? So the church doesn't have a teaching in this area. Um and specifically, the church doesn't have a teaching about the authenticity of the shroud or the associated artifacts. This is in a different category than the um, than Eucharistic miracles. Um, but the fundamental answer is going to be the same. Um, if these things 
are genuinely either the bear in the case of the shroud, the burial cloth of Christ, or you know the cloth that was put over his face, or if this is a genuine manifestation of his physical body as opposed to a miracle that conveys that appearance, but isn't isn't identically the same thing um, in all detail, Um, then his, uh, his human DNA would be present. And if it survived and is in sufficient quantity to be recoverable and testable, then hypothetically you could do that. Uh, in fact, I know there have been studies uh, done on the uh, blood on the shroud, not DNA level studies because they we didn't have the technology to do DNA then, but blood typing studies. Mm-hmm. And they could identify the blood type. Um, and it was a fairly rare one. Um, so if these were authentic artifacts in the case of the shroud and the associated ones, and if Eucharistic miracles represent uh, a manifestation of Jesus's body on the DNA level, mm-hmm. then um, you uh, could hypothetically recover his DNA from that and sequence it. Hmm. Assuming there's enough there and it survived because DNA does degrade over time. Um, and it also can become hard to recover because of admixture with other people's DNA, like right. all the pilgrims who may have kissed the shroud over the centuries. Right. You would, right. Um, just as far as that blood type on the shroud, I'm just curious about this. Uh, do you happen to know or I assume blood types and ethnicities might uh, be correlated? Yeah, be somewhat correlated. Do you, do you happen to know? If- uh, I don't I, I I don't in this case know uh, huh. what the what uh, racial implications there might be for the blood type they found. That's a lot of weird questions uh, you did today. Oh, That's we're a, done. Yeah. OK. Well, when, well, if you like weird stuff, I've got this other thing we can recommend to you. I have this other podcast called Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Just today, we released an episode on a man named John Hendricks, also known as the Tennessee prophet who lived 100 years ago and made amazing predictions that came true. Yeah. uh, One of the things I like about it, uh, Jimmy, is uh, you're open minded to so many things without being... Um, credulous. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I try not. You, I try to be, a better word. Credulous. I, I, I try <laughs> to be open minded, but not so much. My brain falls out. Yeah. Right. And you can and you hold on to the things that are are manifestly true. You know, yeah. you're not slipping and sliding all over. Uh, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for two great hours today. That was my pleasure. Two hours of work. Really appreciate it. Uh, all right. So we want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, including Michael V, John G, Amanda M, Pear H, and Lisa H. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, Jimmy, what is the subject of our next episode going to be? On Monday, we're going to be releasing our next patrons question show. Uh, We recorded it a while back and gave them early exclusive access. Now we're going to let everybody hear it. But on the patrons question show, we reward our patrons by answering their questions. Then next Friday, we'll be looking at another mystery. Excellent. Folks, uh, we love to hear your feedback, to to respond to it as well. So send us your feedback by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Aikens Mysterious World Facebook page. Send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world 
with the hashtag of Mysterious Feedback. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bethanelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest.